Welcome back, everybody, to Live Longer, the podcast, as we continue our journey in this first series, The Art of Healthy Longevity. And this series is in conjunction with Homerton Changemakers at the Cambridge University, where I am Homerton Changemaker Ambassador. And we're working hand in hand with Iona, a digital healthcare company that myself and a number of colleagues founded to enable people live longer, healthier lives by providing the right information at the right time to improve patients' outcomes. And today I have a very, very interesting guest um, in studio with me. And this is really going to tickle your taste buds because when I spoke with her for our pre-meeting, I was starving at the end of the conversation. She's a lovely lady. She's originally from Alberta and she trained as a fine art and in English literature in Seattle. And then she did scenographic studies and pursued a career in theatre. She was very interested in installation and had an eye for detail and an eye for the artistic and the creative side and everything she did. But fascinating, she bootstrapped herself through university at the time. And this is where she first came across food in the commercial sector in restaurants. And I'm really interested to hear her journey through that. She's got an amazing eye for light. She thinks of light as sculpture. And this is because of her work as a designer in theatres and what ultimately led her into cookery because the darkness of the theatrical environment and then she migrated outwards into food. She has been an inspiration to so many individuals with her cookbooks for Maggie's Kitchen at the kitchen table, which I hope we'll discuss today. And this led naturally after selling, after giving away, should I say, over a quarter of a million copies of the book to deserving um, individuals. And um, this led naturally into her chemo cookbook story, which I'm really, really interested to explore with her today. So join me in welcoming Penny Erickson. Penny, welcome today. Hello. Thank you, Millicent, for um, having me here. Thank you. Well, it's a great pleasure. And I'm really excited to talk to you and to hear about the inspiration behind your journey to becoming a cook or should I say professional chef. You are a woman of many talents. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got into cooking? I got into cooking because I come from a family, a Swedish family of fantastic cooks. But very actually, a university education needs must. Um, I worked my way through university working in restaurants. So um, from the age of 14 onward, I was uh, I was washing dishes. I was scrubbing floors. I was prepping anything that had to be prepped. I was serving. I was doing anything. Finally ended up in where I found it the most interesting, which was in the kitchens. Mm, interesting. Well, I think that's fascinating because there are going to be many students as well as members of the public listening to this because of our collaboration with the University of Cambridge. And I'm sure many of them, you know, do have to bootstrap their way through university as well. So I think that's inspiring. And what did you study at university? I touched on it in the introduction a little bit. I did two bachelor's degrees at the same time, one in literature and uh, in English literature and one in fine art. And because to me, they were they were interchangeable. If you're studying Shakespeare, you're both studying Shakespeare as art and theater and as literature. If you're studying Chaucer, all of it, it it's just, it, just all the same thing. And, and also that's what put me into my master's degree, which was um, in, in uh, scenographic design. Ah, and that's what took you then naturally into the theater world where you were creating sets, was it? Or what were you doing in the theater? Scenography is all three. It's sets, lighting, and costume. Mm. And so they were, it, it depended on 
on the, for the first, I don't know, maybe eight to ten years, it was interchangeable. I think I was mostly on sets and painting and then and a lot in costumes and in the early days in lighting and then later on not so much lighting because it takes a, a, a rather different kind of intrepid soul to um, hang from gantries and whatnot. And I wasn't quite quite there in those days. Everything that you do in that world, you, you work, uh, it's all teamwork and you work together. So the um, uh, one designer, all the designers work together. They answer, there's a hierarchy, but everything actually goes back to lighting designer and says, "What? how's that going to work? And then the lighting designer says, it's going to work this way. And then they say to the costume, so the costumes have to be dyed this way so the color picks up and the sets have to be done this way so that the so that the actors can be seen and it's a fan, it's the most fantastic um, collaborative effort of of art. Um, I think yeah, it's just and, and it doesn't matter whether it's theater or whether it's 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 acting or whether it's ballet or opera, uh, live performance, you know, rock concerts. It's uh, it's just a fantastic environment to be part of. But I can hear your passion coming out and, you know, those skills of setting the scene, your eye to detail, the eye for light. I can absolutely see how you migrated into producing cookbooks because a cookbook is so visual. It, you know, it jumps out on the page for you. And as you said yourself, when you look at the cookbook, it should make you want to taste those recipes. So that takes us, you know, to your cookbooks. And you were showing me a picture of one of your first books that you did for a friend entitled Zen, was it? Was it? Was I right on that? And you told me how that was sort of a migrating point from the art of theatre and that world into cooking and more focusing on your cooking and books. Yeah, as a, a feast of the senses yes. um, on summer night's eve in a Zen temple, I think. Feast is it's just a beautiful book and um, it was a collaborative effort. I've helped several um, others produce their books and this was uh, one of the first ones that I helped with and, and designed and did a lot of the food in as well but it was a fantastic thing because uh, people think that Zen is just you know spiritual thought but Zen is is also a journey uh, both inner and outer of, of both the creative but also the psychological power that one has and how they use it so to create a book that was, and it's about refinement, and so to create a book and a set of images and to translate somebody else's ideas into something that was beautiful and interesting was just an enormous challenge. And, um, and also that um, a Zen priest would <laughs> like to look at uh, because they're rather discerning souls. Yeah, well, I like that whole idea that it's a psychological journey as well, because we need to reach out for little tools that help us feel better. And, you know, the whole aim of this podcast is to enable people live longer, healthier. And now, of course, we must embrace the best in medicine, the best in science. But then what else can people do? And that brings us to, you know, nurturing our um, bodies with good food. And, and you even um, used the expression when we chatted on the phone that, you know, food is nourishment for the soul as well. And you saw that through your own personal experience when you started out um, cooking for your husband, didn't you? Are you willing to share that story on how you got into cooking books for patients with certain types of illness? Absolutely. It's, um, it, it's, it's rather public and um, and it's one that I think that we're proud of cancer isn't something that you're proud of at all 
but cancer is something that I don't know a living soul that has not been touched by cancer, whether it's a friend, um, whether it's themselves, whether it's a family, whether it's a work colleague, it doesn't matter. Everybody has a cancer story to tell. And it's only one of a plethora of maladies that that we exist with um, as human beings. Um, It just happens to be um, a rather enormous and troublesome one. Uh, My husband was diagnosed with a rather fierce colon cancer, and it was very well advanced. We uh, started on a very long journey of treatment. I won't bore um, your listeners with the details of it, but suffice to say, after four years, and I can't remember how many operations and three and a half tours of chemotherapy, he was left um, with palliative care, and um, we'll keep him comfortable. You have about uh, somewhere around six to eight weeks, maybe six months if you're lucky, to live. And that was that was where we were 11, 11 years ago, 12 years ago now. All we could do was just keep feeding him and feeding his body and keeping him strong enough both mentally and physically to endure the treatment because you can't get through the invasive drugs unless your body's strong enough to do it. And you can't get through that unless your brain is strong enough to do it. And so you've got to feed all of it. So it's a very holistic process. Uh, we were extremely lucky because we ended up getting keeping him strong enough to get to surgeons that had a very creative way of thinking about things and they don't give up at the Pelican Cancer Foundation. And they did some groundbreaking work and they saved his life. And he's a very healthy guy. He's been cancer free for now almost 12 years. That's incredible. So food nurtured him and kept him strong enough in order that he could receive the best medicine and science, which I think is a really powerful message. That is an ultimate message Mm. that without without and, and the surgeons have even written in, in my first Chemo Cookery Club book, without his nutrition, we'd have never been able to help. That's amazing. And as a parent of a child who did have a very severe form of cancer, my, my daughter had neuroblastoma. I can attest to the importance of nutrition, but it is extremely hard. And I was speaking as a parent rather than as a doctor. You know, when you're on the cancer journey, it's long hours in the hospital, late nights. The last thing you want to do is, you know, delve into cookery books and go and find fancy ingredients. So it's easier said than done. And although these books are beautiful, what advice would you give for people who do are going through the cancer journey and how they can use your books most effectively? The first message is never, ever be hard on on yourself because not everybody is a great cook. In fact, not everybody is a cook. And that's the point about the books is that you don't have to be a great cook or a good cook to make good and nourishing food. And sometimes you don't even have to cook. It's okay to, and you can forgive yourself if you're, I mean, I can remember so many times when I would, uh, after what we call the big op, uh, when Simon had the big operation, uh, I would come home. I'd leave the hospital at seven or eight o'clock at night and I would go to whatever grocery store. I just, I, I had no appetite whatsoever. I couldn't face cooking for one person. And um, I was exhausted. I mean, completely and utterly empty. And I would just look at the, ready meals. And I mean, I probably tested every ready meal they had in every single grocery store over that two months. And some of them were great. 
I have to say. And then sometimes I would maybe add a bit of spice or do this and help myself out with them. So in the first instance, I think the message is, do you know, we need to nourish our bodies in any way we can. And that means the carers, not just the patients. Yes, I agree. Um, it's a really vital thing. But when things were reasonably stable, and I can't imagine how hard it is. And I, we, I have to talk, I talk to a lot of patients that don't have a support system. They're on their own. And especially in these days with COVID, there are a, p- a lot of people that are on their own. And how do they cope when they're exhausted and they just can't find their way? It's a really, really challenging question. I was going to say that when we were discussing this before, you did give one very, very powerful tip, I thought. And you said that, you know, find one or two things you like and become a master of those. So don't put the pressure on yourself that you have to have the constant variety. If you find one or two things, practice that and practice mastery in that. It will give a sense of achievement through food and through creating something beautiful that will nurture you. Yes, that goes for every walk in life. If you find everybody get a signature dish or when it comes to food or a few things if you put love a particular type of food or type of um uh, fish or vegetable make it your own and and create with it and move it around food is just the most malleable and easy to work with raw material And failure is a great part of a creative process in every walk of life. So, and keep it simple. Keep it, it's so easy to create great food. We don't all have to be, you know, candidates for master chef. I think we can all just make great, nourishing, humble food. And also, there is, I don't know, if, if you ask any, you're a mother, you ask any mother, what's your favorite meal? And you can say, the breakfast that my eight-year-old daughter made me. Absolutely. And mine was the smoothie my daughter made me. She attempted to do one of your recipes, but her very naughty mother didn't have the right materials in the house. <laughs> but, you know, she, she does love your cookbook, by the way. So that brings me to another point that your cookbooks, yes, they're important during the journey in cancer, but actually they may become even more important long after the cancer you know, has been dealt with to keep one nourished. So I think they have a longevity in themselves, both to prevent illnesses and keep one's body nourished during the illness and actually long afterwards. Would you agree with that? Yes, and the, the newest the newest book, Cups and Sauces, Kimber Cooker Cup, Cups and Sauces, which is kind of uh, we we changed the format of of the new book, and we added hair and skincare, and we added exercise, because although everything that we do in with the food is is we rely on uh, strictly on evidence based information that comes from the World Cancer Research Fund and the American Institute of Cancer Research the two organizations that hold the policy on what we know is absolutely correct about cancer treatment and about how we're, how the professionals, the medical profession and all aspects of the medical profession are working um, uh, in the disciplines. When it comes to, they, they can only recommend things. And it used to be that, you know, you would say after an operation, so, uh, you know, you, you just had surgery or you just had a procedure, it, the recommendation, medical recommendation, we just rest, lay down, have a few days. Now it's get up, get moving. 
I mean, within reason and boundaries, but it is the faster you're up and moving. And the exercise now is a far more important part than uh, of the, the, the holistic message than it was even eight years ago, which is where how the, how the policies progress. And that's not going to, I mean, that's just not going to change. That's just going to keep on going. The more knowledge that we have, the faster the recovery processes will be, the better the medicines are going to be. And the better the nutrition is going to be, because the more you're moving, the more you metabolize the nutrition, and the better you're you're physically um, helping yourself. And I think also you're mentally helping yourself. Mm. And it's so that it's just so important to keep the whole picture in balance. Yes, absolutely. And we also have another eminent uh, physician, uh, Professor Tim Spector, who's going to be joining us in a number of weeks to discuss not only his um, nutritional books, but of course, he's a, an expert on, on COVID as well. So I think that will be fascinating to get this joined up thinking from science, from art and, and creativity to actually get the best outcome for people. So that's that's really interesting. And I mean, clearly, um you started out life and you've come at the cooking from a different perspective, from art, literature, theatre, drama. And, and then you've migrated into cooking and from a personal need. And I can see that shining through in some of your cookbooks. And I wanted to take you back to um, Around the Kitchen Table, which is for Maggie Centre, isn't it? And um, mm. I wanted to take you to the front page, the front cover of that book, because we, we chatted a little bit about it. And I was struck by this was a work of art. This table is set. It's a round table. There's a beautiful white cloth. It's got so much hidden imagery. And I wonder, would you briefly take us through the hidden imagery there that really epitomizes all the skills you have as a person bringing this to life for us? Around the Kitchen Table, the Maggie's book, it was commissioned by, for me, to finish off a project that Maggie Carruthers herself actually started. And I think that what's really important, which I know that you spoke with Christopher in, in a previous podcast about. Yes, Christopher Wilkinson, for anybody who hasn't listened, podcast number three. The fabulous architect, Christopher Wilkinson, um, who designed the Oxford Maggie Centre. The whole point of Around the Kitchen Table is, is a, it's, it's a, if you like, the central pillar of the Maggie's philosophy, uh, the Maggie Centre's philosophy, which is that's where people gather and so every single building that they have and everything that they do is around the kitchen table, literally. And if you've never been to a Maggie Centre, I highly recommend that any everybody is welcome to go in, whether you're um, a patient or not, to, just to go in to experience one of these spaces. That They're really a fa fantastic thing. What we did was I looked at the imagery of the buildings that have been designed by all of these fantastic architects. But also, was I thought about the cycle of life and the cycle of healing and the cycle of communication, and which is why everything is circular and everything is moving around and your eye is dancing around because you're meant to imagine that everybody is sitting there and they're about to dive into the most simple lunch that could possibly be served, which is a little quiche with some some little vegetables and some juice and the magnolias, which were the flowers that uh, were Maggie's personal favorite flowers and uh, a bit of salad again, but everything is round. Even the cucumbers are round in the salad. 
Oh, I so, love that. And the circle of life. I think that's really good because, you know, families bind us together. And in times of, you know, trauma, which this country has seen through COVID, perhaps food can give comfort to, to people as they go through difficult times through the circle of life around the table. Now more than ever, to stay on the positive side of that, what the lockdowns and, and this pandemic has meant to us has been that the need for connectivity in whatever means possible is absolutely critical in life. It's been a it's been an amazing time for reflection. I think for for me personally, to think what it means to reach out to people and how you use imagery and you use media to to communicate. I think and with food. And you, you eat with your eyes as much as, uh, as much as anything. If it doesn't make you hungry, when you look at it, you don't want to eat it. Yeah, I think that theme of connectivity is extremely profound. And, you know, having um, breaking bread as a family together, if one is lucky enough to be in a position to do so, is incredibly powerful. And that is one of the, the benefits of, of lockdown, if you can even say a benefit of lockdown. But I entirely agree with you. And of course, we're doing this podcast in conjunction with Homerton Changemakers and, you know, just reflecting on how food could change people's lives. Would you say that that is one of the big things to try and connect with your fellow mankind through food, through breaking bread together? It, it is absolutely something that, that uh, Millicent, we, we didn't have a chance to talk about and it's just come to my mind is on the, um, the 15th of February in Canada is a holiday called Family Day. And um, a dear friend of mine was producing a, a program, which was the world's largest virtual cooking class. Hmm. And it was all done with new technology. It was all done um, on, a, on this massive Zoom. Now, now she's a big television producer. There were over 2,000 families across the globe that signed in and joined this one cooking class that lasted for an hour, two hours or whatever. And we made we made a very simple dish because it was for families. We made gnocchi and a pomodoro sauce. And I think it was 19 countries. And in one night, 45,000 Canadian dollars were raised. Then Money was raised in other countries like Australia and here and whatever. But just in Canada, over $45,000 in two hours, was raised to put into a uh, into, um, food bank called Daily Bread. Wow, that's incredible. What a cook-a-thon. And certainly it's much more pleasurable Zoom than the usual cocktail parties that people are having. The reason I bring it up was for two reasons. Number one is that the way that we're using media and you're using media with us doing this right now is phenomenal. And before COVID, we wouldn't have trusted it in the same way that we do now. We wouldn't have used it in the same way, but it's never going to go away. It's only going to expand. So to embrace it, I think, is is a fantastic thing. And the other thing is that the power of a simple cooking class with families could do something that had such an impact in such an immediate and visceral way. 
Mm, I completely agree. I mean, it will have binded them together, but also binded them with the rest of humanity by giving. It's incredible. And that takes me to your other charitable endeavours, because you're very involved with the Pelican Cancer Research as well, aren't you? And we, we would like to put up a link to that if anybody is interested in donating. But can you tell us a little bit about your work with Pelican? Yeah, uh, I, I wish that they could tell them yourself. They're, Pelican means um, pelvic liver cancer, but it's not limited to that. It's Pelican is below the belt, if you if you like. So anything that that is happens, you know, down there, it's all the icky, sticky, awful stuff that happens to men and women that nobody really likes to talk about. Bowel, colorectal cancer, bowel cancer is the second largest killer in the UK, a cancer killer in the UK. And when caught early, over 80%, I think the statistic is 80% right now, could be um, either eradicated or significantly life-prolonging. Um, I know that they've done a lot of work to lower the, the testing from, it used to be 65. I think that in Scotland now, the age is 55, 50 or 50, 55. Um, and I think just recently in, in England, it's gone down to uh, 55 as well. Maybe it's just 60 now. But what they do, what these people do, which is incredibly special, is they, they research and test and develop the precision operations and procedures that remove cancer. So it's surgical. Because the drugs don't kill cancer. They can, if it's really early, um, you can arrest it. But when you get to a certain stage, only taking it away physically can cure you. And that's what these people do. And these surgeons and clinicians are famous around the world. And they're right here in Hampshire, in Basingstoke, at North Hampshire Hospital is where their, their clinics are. And they are the most extraordinary team of men and women that uh, that I know and they saved my husband's life so well I can attest to that because we share many We're patients grateful. with that <laughs> yeah I'm sure you are and but many many other patients are also very grateful uh, I see the amazing work and I think it's a really really worthy cause if anybody does feel like donating we certainly would strongly endorse that charity it's a very good one well, Penny, thank you so much for talking to me today. I, I, I'm personally very inspired. I'm hungry now after listening to you. <laughs> but um, you have um, highlighted how food is key to keep us all alive. It's important for nourishing not only our body, our soul. You've shown us an example how you can harness many talents inside yourself to bring something beautiful and creative to hundreds of thousands of people. And then also selflessly, you've not only helped your husband, but you've helped many other people's husbands and wives and children as well with your amazing work and through your collaborations with Maggie Centre. So I want to thank you so much for giving up your time today and coming on the show. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Can I close with telling you just one little thing? Of course. When I moved, when I moved, um, and this is for, this is for the uh, the students of Homerton um, uh, College. When I moved to the UK in 1996, the first six months that I was in London, I lived in Homerton. Ah. <laughs> which is in Hackney. Yes. And um, in East London, and I lived about uh, a ten-minute walk from the original the original Homerton house, ah. which has a blue plaque on it. 
And if anybody, which is now a museum and a center, and if you ever go in, if you're ever there, it's not far off Homerton High Street. And if you ever go in, it has the most fascinating story about the origins of your college. Well, that is an amazing link. I mean, it is one of the oldest colleges, not necessarily incorporated into Cambridge, but it is one of the oldest colleges. Um, and the history, yes, is fascinating. And I encourage all of our students to look this up. And we will remember you very fondly every time we go into class. Um, Penny, thank you. Thank you very much, Millicent, and all the best. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Live Longer, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you do wish to send us any feedback or get in touch, please feel free to contact us at hello at livelongerthepodcast.com. And finally, join us next week for our fascinating guest, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, Mr. Dan White. And he's going to be taking us back to the Banks of Cambridge also, as he's one of the key photographers of Stephen Hawking before his death. So that's going to be a really um, good episode to tune into too. Thanks for listening.